This is Salt and Spine. Because I wanted to show, like, what my version of American cuisine was growing up. You know, America is such a melting pot, so, like, it's not pot roast for everybody. You know, for me, it was oxtails, and couldn't tell you what it was, but it was good, and I was living in America, so for me, that, that was American food. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Kwame Onwachi. Now, over the last decade, Kwame has taken the culinary world by storm. This week, in fact, he's fresh off of his gig hosting the James Beard Awards. But before he was doling them out, he was winning them. The James Beard winning chef has also been named one of Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chefs, Esquire's Chef of the Year. He's been on the 30 Under 30 lists from Zagat and Forbes, and he earned a spot on Time Magazine's coveted 100 Next list. And he earned all of this attention for his rapid and sometimes turbulent culinary rise. After culinary school and training in top Michelin-starred restaurants, he, get this, opened five acclaimed restaurants all before he turned 30. Now, Kwame chronicles his life from growing up in New York City with extended stints in Louisiana and Nigeria, and the path that led him to his first restaurant, the Shaw Bijou, in his 2019 memoir, Notes from a Young Black Chef, which he wrote with Joshua David Stein. He's followed that up with a cookbook out now titled My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef, also co-authored by Stein. Part memoir and part cookbook, My America features recipes from Kwame's culinary journey, from soya, the Nigerian barbecue, to the agusi stew, a Nigerian recipe he grew up eating that's thickened with agusi or melon seed. Kwame joined us to discuss his culinary career, his books, and of course, to play our signature culinary game. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Kwame Onwachi joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Kwame. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. What's going on? What's up? What's up? It's great to chat with you. Um, happy Thursday. Really excited to talk with you about your latest book, your your first cookbook, uh, latest book, but first cookbook, My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef. Um, and we'll we'll get to the book in a second, as as we of course will need to do. But uh, we always like to start by talking a little bit um, with our guests about your life and what brought you to where you are today, and particularly as it relates to food. So we like to start at the beginning. I know you grew up um, mostly in the Bronx, and mm-hmm. you you write you know in this book and and in your first book um, as well about having exposure to, you know, a whole array of cuisines from an early age. Can you talk about those food memories from really early on and how you were attentive to food? Were you interested at an early age? Like paint that picture for us a little bit. Yeah. You know, food was, was always around, you know, as a, as a kid, that's how we showed love to each other. You know, we made dishes for each other, you know, even as a kid, I remember we didn't get much for Christmas, but we definitely got gumbo. You know, um, uh-huh. we didn't we didn't get much for my birthday, but I always got my mom's fisherman pie. So yeah, food was always there. My mom had a catering company that she started in the Bronx, and you know, very much against the law, she threw me an apron at five years old, and I had to help peel shrimp and fabricate vegetables in order to help keep the lights on. So that was my first introduction to food. Was it was it was it was my lifeline. It was it was what brought our family together. Yeah, so you you start cooking with your mom, you know, at five. She's she's running a catering business. She's a chef. I I read somewhere that you impressed her too when you were I think nine years old by taking a food and wine um, recipe and 
adapting it, right? As a nine-year-old, tweaking it. Exactly. That was the first time my mom was like, okay, this boy's got some talent. You know, I wasn't just following a recipe. I was actually putting putting myself into the recipe and just using it as a guideline. And I think that was an aha moment for all of us. You know, I, I really wanted to make this dish. It was a dish that stood out to me. And, um, and it was at that point, that was like kind of a turning point where I dove in a little bit more and uh, really started absorbing everything around me uh, in terms of cuisine. Mm-hmm. That's also right before, I think, like a, a year or so before you moved to Nigeria. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that is. How does that sort of change things or how does that impact that that trajectory? You know, you kind of have this inkling that you want to do something with food, right? Yeah, well, you know, I think it changes things because I, I had a real connection to food at that point. Before I was, I was a kid in America, so food came in, in you know, uh, plastic wrap, styrofoam containers, or already fabricated. Um, there, you know, we were actually like raising our own livestock, um, you know, cultivating our own vegetables. So I was able to see the process of food and, and how detailed it was from from the inception of a dish, but also the inception of like its ingredients. And I think that gave me a deeper understanding, but also um, some more empathy when when it comes to food in its totality. Yeah. So uh, we're going to skip uh, a big chapter um, of your life and and jump ahead because you, you then end up at uh, the Culinary Institute of America, right? Can you talk mm-hmm. about that experience? And you used a phrase um, in My America, this colonizing of the mind that can happen at many culinary schools or can be the experience that many people, particularly people of color, have at culinary schools where historically they have been led by uh, white men in particular. Um, and you write about, you know, Pollo Asado and th- this unit you say was meant to like blow your mind and you're, you're sort of conflicted, right? Cause you're like, I grew up in the Bronx eating amazing Pollo Asado and you weren't that impressed with this, this French poulet. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that experience and what, what it was like to then go to culinary school, um, for you and how that sort of shaped you as a chef coming out of there? For sure. And it was, I think it was a pollo, yeah, for the pollo asado. It was like, that was a great example because here they were teaching us how to make this, you know, perfectly quote unquote, you know, roasted chicken. Um, and I feel like I've had perfectly roasted chicken that, that tasted better than that with, with more flavor and, and more of, more of a story that was like really ingrained in that. And that was the beautiful thing about the, about culinary school and the CIA in particular. It taught us the, the why and the how behind cooking. So we're able to take these like classic, uh, you know, techniques and then apply them to the jungle of flavor, you know, that we have in the Caribbean and 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 West Africa and the American South, um, and apply that to the to the cuisine. So I think it was a perfect marriage of those two things. But you know, I was exposed to so many different cultures growing up. So every single thing that they had as their reference point for me was more of a reference point of technique, not of flavor. And, you know, that's what I took away. Yeah. So that was happening really in the moment for you as you're in culinary mm-hmm. school. You're sort of starting to build all those bridges and make those connections. Yeah. You know, it's like you're, t- you're teaching me how to perfectly roast a chicken, but I'm going to teach you how to perfectly season the chicken. And I'm going to marry these two things together. Yeah. You have a very fast trajectory then, right? You come out of culinary school, you start working at 
um, some of the most award, we'll call them most awarded kitchens, um, most sort of traditionally awarded kitchens. Most lauded uh, kitchens. <laughs> most lauded, right, whatever we want to call them. Um, <laughs> you start working at these esteemed places in New York City, you're, you're on Top Chef. Um, and side note, I appreciate that in both of your books, you, you say um, young on the title because we were born the same year and I some days I don't feel so young. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you have this fast trajectory, right? And you're, you're in your mid to late 20s, I think, um, when you have this opportunity handed to you to open this sort of restaurant of your dreams, right? In, in DC, in the Shaw neighborhood. And before we get to sort of the aftermath of that and where you where you go next you write in your first book about having some self-doubt too as you're preparing to open because it was such a personal um you were embarking on such a personal venture the menu mm -hmm. was so personal how did you sort of work through that and i'm curious like is that something that has carried with you throughout your life that sort of self-doubt or was that a, a turning point for you you know, I think we all have that, you know, there's always that internal voice that's telling us that we can't do something or, or we're not good enough or you're going to fail. Um, and I think that that, that there, there can be a healthy relationship with that and there can be a very damaging and detrimental relationship with that voice. I think you have to find the balance. You know, you can be your, your, your biggest critic, but you, but you, also, you also have to be your biggest cheerleader at the same time. And I think the cheerleader, uh, is voice is, is a lot more, um, a lot more audible than the, the inner critic at this point, because I've faced that, that failure, you know, and, and removing that fear of failure. That's always, that's always going to loom for, I don't, I don't care w what you're doing, big or small, but you also have to see the greatness within you. Um, and that's what I try to tap into more so now than, than ever. And you, you faced it so publicly at such a young age. Yes. You know, I think about so many people in the industry, especially the last you know few years as we've gone through COVID and um, failure, if we want to use the word failure, or just um, things have not gone well for so many people in so many ways in this industry. And so to, to have that experience of failing quite publicly and failing quite publicly so young, did you take lessons away from that that you know might be useful for other folks in the industry to hear? It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to fail. It's a gift to be able to try something. You know, failure is a word that's put on you by other people, you know, like because success is another word that's put on you by other people. From where I come from, just having the opportunity to do that was success in itself. Not many people get the opportunity to open their own restaurants, especially at that age. So, um, so I don't look at these things as failures. I, I look at life as such uh, it's such a blessing, you know, the ability to feel is something that we take for granted, whether that's feeling sadness or anxiety or happiness or joy. Um, it's a blessing in, 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 in and of itself. And we need to really look at it as that. And a lot of these rain clouds will pass. And, you know, the most successful people are only successful because they, they just never gave up. And as long as you have that mindset, I think um, you'll achieve whatever you want to achieve in this in this lifetime. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with author Kwame Onwachi. Stay tuned. Hey there, cookbook lover. Are you subscribed to Salt and Spine on Substack? If not, you should be. You'll find our full catalog of podcast episodes featuring more than 100 in-depth interviews with top authors like Nigella Lawson, Jacques Pepin, Samin Nosrat, and Carla Hall. 
all. And for just $5 or less per month, you'll also get access to hundreds of exclusive featured recipes from top cookbooks. You'll get early access to our quarterly cookbook club and author dinner parties and so much more. At Salt and Spine, we bring cookbooks to life and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. Join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content. Find out more at saltandspine.substack.com. And now back to our conversation with Kwame Onwachi, author of My America. Let's let's pivot to the book a little bit. So I know when you embarked on on this project to write a cookbook, you started a, a sort of much deeper exploration and study of diasporic cuisines. And we see that on display sort of right at the beginning when we open the pages of My America with this pantry section, right? And you write about you write um the pantry is the soul of the diaspora kitchen where hardship has been alchemized into the richest, deepest, most delicious flavors of the world. Can you talk about that decision to start with pantry and to put it in that context and how much of that sort of came from that process of this deeper study? For you sure. You know, I think the pantry is so important, even if, if you know, if we want to call back to that roasted chicken recipe from, you know, um, you know from Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic, you know, the, mm-hmm. the rub starts, starts in the pantry. You know, you, you start to build flavors way before you even touch a piece of protein. And it's these sauces, you know, that can stand the, the test of time and have a long shelf life because they're acidulated or they have a lot of oil in them um, or they're cooked down or they're frozen. Right. I think they're the building blocks for, for most great cuisine is the pantry, is the spice blends, is the rubs, um, the pickling liquids, the hot sauces. So I think we can't even get into the food until you really truly understand why the pantry is so important, why you need to make your chicken stock from scratch. Because when you cook it down, that gelatin starts to um, uh, starts to intensify and you're left with a beautiful sauce, even if you just add salt and pepper to it. So the pantry is just as important as getting to the main the main ingredient, you know, the, the main course, um, because it, it, it lends and adds so much flavor, but it also adds to the story of the dish. And if a dish tells a story, it has a soul. You're not just cooking for perfect seasoning and people can really taste that love. And that's what this, you know, my America really emulates in, in all of its recipes, whether it's down to its anecdotes, um, uh, whether it's the, the, the beautiful photographs from clay, um, it, it all tells a story and it's a story of survival. It's a story of freedom. It's a story of perseverance. It's a, it's a story of dexterity and it's a story of deliciousness. Yeah, I, I love that you open with pantry. And there's this, um, you you alluded to the photography from Clay. There's this photo, too, in the pantry section of all of these um, pantry items, right? Condiments, sauces, things. And your arms are outstretched sort of around mm-hmm. them. Like you're sort, you're sort of maybe embracing them. You're sort of maybe offering yeah. them up um, in, a, in an open palm sort of way. Um, and I'm curious, you know, as you're offering up all of these pantry things, if there's, there's something you would say people should really like the one thing, I know it's always hard to pick one thing in any capacity, yeah, but like what's, one what's the thing or what are the couple of things that you think? I'll people say really a couple of to... things for sure. Yeah. You know, the ginger garlic puree is something that, that you know, everybody yeah. should have in their fridge or freezer. It just bumps up the flavor of everything. Also peeling ginger and chopping garlic is, is not for the faint of heart if you're doing it every single night. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's one. Uh, the another one is house spice. It's my mother's like spice blend. Uh, you could actually get it from Spiceology. I've, I've bottled it, so it's kind of like easier for you to to access. 
Um, cool. And then the pepper sauce. It's my grandfather's recipe. He's from Trinidad. It's really just garlic and, and scotch bonnet or habanero peppers blended with this pickling liquid. And, you know, using that to cook with as well as to, like, finish your dish with a little bit of hot sauce adds so much layers of so many layers of flavor to any dish that you're cooking. Yeah. Great recommendations. Um, I know for this for this book, you traveled um, a fair amount and you were able to go back to, you know, the um, American South to Nigeria with family members or loved ones. Can you talk about those experiences and how that sort of shaped this book? Yeah, they all were special. You know, I remember going to Mamou, Louisiana with my grandmother, you know, where, where she was, where she was born. Um, you know, she, she showed me the hospital. She, was born in because it was the only hospital that accepted black patients. You know, she showed me the church that she grew up in. Um, you know, Mardi Gras was originated there and we went and, and celebrated that and, and went to my cousin's house and his, his fridge was full of squirrels that were like frozen in time. So, mm-hmm. um, so that was particularly special. Um, going to Trinidad and Tobago with my grandfather and literally seeing the canals he used to jump over as a kid and, I went back to his uh, elementary school where he hadn't been back in like 60 years, um, you know, and tasted food on the beach of, uh, on, on the beaches there. And, um, it was just a beautiful experience to, I've tasted this food, you know, throughout my life, but tasting it, you know, where it's grown, where it was conce- conceptualized is, is a different story. And then going back to Nigeria where I used to, you know, run the streets as a kid and, you know, reliving those moments and re- recreating dishes that, that I had when I was young and cooking for that audience. Um, it was just so many full circle moments that that lent to this book and really let me put some some history and, and soul into it. Yeah. And you write a little bit about that process that, that you just mentioned, right? Of um, You use the phrase, I kept my stream separate. Like you would say, I, I deconstructed curried goat from Trinidad until you really understood the elements of the dish, each individual part. And then you sort of started to like blend these things together. Was that, is that different like than how you've always cooked or is that sort of going back to like your time at the CIA? Yeah. Yeah. I would think it's important to understand the root of any dish before you get all Uh crazy with it. You know, I think that's how you can pay homage to any dish and, um, and really give it the, the respect it deserves. Um, but yeah, you know, I think taking that the way that it is made, traditionally and then viewing it through the way that i've the, you know my culinary lens through through my experiences are how i make these dishes my own and a lot of these these dishes in the book they're not far off from the originals you may have some like um you know cooking techniques that have been modernized or or adding you know more flavor in into certain dishes by building them or or you know injecting you know, juiciness into the jerk chicken by making a jerk brine. That those are the only mm-hmm. things that I'm doing, but I'm preserving the the integrity of all of these dishes, and that's what I try to do when I cook. Yeah, I'm curious because I, uh, you know, I started our conversation by talking about your childhood, um, mm-hmm. and and dishes you remember growing up and all of that. And you write in this book that children think their first memories are the start of their story. And then you talk about dishes just as you did now that have this intense, not intense, but this um, lengthy history, right? You, you talk about um, 
thing, you know, something that you tasted as a toddler, your ancestors had made a generation or two before in a different part of the world, perhaps, and in, in homes you don't know, stretching back through time. So I'm curious, too, because you decided to title both of your books Young Black Chef, which sort of alludes to this idea, right, that we're always in always learning, always educating ourselves. You're still young in in so many ways in, in both um, age, but also in understanding of everything. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We're all learning. What what is that? How does that sort of translate to your work? Because it feels like a little bit of a through line that you allude to a number of times, this process of learning and educating, um, both in a personal perspective, but also um, more broadly. Well, I'm going to try to stay young as, as long as possible. So I'm <laughs> yes, I, that title it, yeah. as a, as I, a, I think you, you should. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, in, in all professions, but, you know, especially cooking, we're a student, you know, most of our, we should remain a student. You know, and I, escaping me what chef said that I'm not going to take that. Um, that. That is a quote from a very famous chef, I think Escoffier or, or Fernand Plant. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, we should always be a sponge. We should always be observing. We should always be learning. And I think that's where the true magic happens. Because if you think about it, there's nothing really new under the sun. You know, I can create something uh-huh. and, you know, think I had a eureka moment. It's a stroke of genius. But I think when we come together and tell a story collectively, it's a way more impactful. And that's where these dishes came from. You know, they came from collective thinking. There's not one person that wanted to be the originator of curry goat, you know, it came because of, you know, the Indians coming to the Caribbean and bringing their spices and, you know, goat being a very sustainable, uh, uh, animal and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and blending with the, with the native flavors. And, and that's how the dish came about. So I think most, most of the, most of the dishes that stand the test of time are, are their snapshot in history. Um, and, you know, and that's what I want to continue to do, you know, with my cooking. Yeah. Just take these snaps. Be a cameraman of, of the times. A cameraman and an artist at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, did the title come easily to you, My America? Uh, no, it took some time, you know, and that was a group group um, group effort. You know, Joshua mm-hmm. David Stein definitely had a, a huge part in that. And, um, you know, we had a bunch of iterations. I think it was like My Africa, My America was like what we started with. And then we brainstormed a lot. Um, and then came, dwindled it down to my America because I wanted to show like what my version of American cuisine was growing up. You know, America is such a melting pot. So like, it's not pot roast for everybody. You know, for me, it was oxtails and couldn't tell you what it was, but it was good. And I was living in America. So for me, that, that was American food, um, as a child. So, so yeah, I kind of want to give a voice to the inaudible and, and have a book that's like, you know, if you want to make perfect jerk chicken, here it is, the textbook on it. If you want to make perfect jollof rice, this is the textbook on it. Is there anything that surprised you when you were working on this book? Anything that just like that you learned or that you discovered or, or you know, about the world or about yourself um, that you took away from the process? Um, nothing that really surprised me. I think the what probably what surprised me was that I had to like whittle down all the dishes that uh-huh. I did grow up eating. And I was like, man, I, I definitely had a diverse, uh, diverse meal program in my house. Uh, so that was, that was pretty sure. cool. You know, I could have, re- I could write a second volume based off of just other dishes that I, that I had growing up or dishes that I've cooked throughout, you know, my, my time here on this earth. Um, I think what was beautiful about it was all the stories that made the dishes what they are and really like digging deep into 
the etymology of all these dishes. Yeah. Where's your own cookbooks uh, to that effect? I'm curious, like where you get inspiration. Are there other cookbook authors that you turn to either before or during, you know, this process as you were writing your first cookbook? Um, I mean, definitely like Jessica B. Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple cookbooks that really dive into, you know, the Vietnam cookbook, the India cookbook, um, uh, Pierre Thiem's books, uh, even books that like are like so different, like Kicho, you know, the mm-hmm. history of like Kaiseki cuisine, you know, all those books that like dive into history are, I think are super important, um, for, for anybody. It doesn't really matter the, the genre or the cuisine. Uh, it's really about the storytelling aspect. Yeah, I know I, you've talked in a number of interviews and elsewhere about um, the the restaurant industry and um, equity and representation in the restaurant industry and that there's, you know, a, there's been a ceiling for chefs of color to move up mm-hmm. in the restaurant industry. It's also, of course, very true in publishing and in cookbook publishing and um now we have your your cookbook to add to the canon of works from from great black authors. But I'm wondering if you have advice to sort of young black authors in particular, because I think we've heard your advice to young black cooks, and maybe it's similar. But um, you know, young black writers who want to be chefs and cookbook authors, what what do you say to them? I would say uh, find your story first. You know, your story is going to like really it's going to really shape your narrative, and if you can find your story of of who you are and why you are the way you are, then you can really find what kind of like you align with. And then it becomes pretty easy. You're just telling your story in, in different ways. Um, and you, you know, it's all about finding your voice uh, as early as possible, so then you can, can control your own narrative. I'm curious what's next for you. So I know um, you moved to New York during the pandemic and we're planning to open a restaurant and then, decided not to do that um, and, mm-hmm. and left and come, came and joined us over here on, on the best coast. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what's, what's in store for you? I, I think I know your, your first book notes from young black chef is being made into a movie. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's made into a movie. So working on that, um, you know, working on some events, you know, we have the family reunion with food and wine in Aspen. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, we'll see, you know, I got my hands full right now, but you never know, maybe some more restaurants on the horizon. Um, but for now, it's really like focusing on this book and getting that out there. Yeah. Can you talk about the family reunion for people who aren't aware of that event? Yeah. So the family reunion is a food and wine festival. Um, it, it's in conjunction with Sheila Johnson and Salamander Resort and Spas. Um, and it's a four-day food festival that really celebrates black and brown contributions to the food industry. You know, I haven't really seen many events like that. And I've always felt a little bit out of place at other events um, and wanted to do one that just celebrated us, you know, from even entertainers and, uh, you know, beverage professionals, just an all encapsulating, you know, four day festival of, of, you know, having a good time, but also feeding our minds, you know, as much as we're doing our bellies and, and our livers um, and really telling these stories. So. So it's really great. You know, we have programming, we have panel discussions, we have breakout sessions from like, you know, zip lining to the, the history of soul food with Dr. Jessica B. Harris or the history of barbecue with Rodney Scott and Brian Furman and Matt Horn. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have parties at nighttime, which are really fun from African night market to, you know, Jamaican dance hall to a block party. 
Um, so, so yeah, it's a really beautiful event. Um, it's annual and looking forward to this year. Yeah. Very exciting. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Well, we always end with a little game. So Let's I thought today it. we'd, we'd borrow some inspiration from your, your book and the title, my America. And I'm going to give you some ingredients from our, our decks of cards here. And you can tell us how that might manifest itself into a dish from, from your America where there's inspiration for um, treating, tr- handling that ingredient. How does that sound? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the choice. Um, we'll do a couple rounds. I've got uh, cards here, uh, four, four decks of cards. So we have proteins, proteins makes sense. Vegetables also self-explanatory. We have a deck of flavor cards here. So those are um, flavoring agents, spices, etc. cetera. Uh, and then we have a secret ingredient deck that can be kind of um, more obscure or just sort of out of left field ingredients. So uh, where do you want to start? Uh, start with the proteins. Let's start with the protein. All right. Uh, no, you can't see, but I'm shuffling, drawing from the middle. All right. And we have beans. After that. Okay. All right. We're going to start with beans. So okay. beans, how do you, how do you treat beans in, in my beans, America? You, you know, dish, yeah. yeah. So beans, I'm definitely going with moi moi. It's like a uh-huh. steamed, uh, black bean custard. You take the beans, you, you remove all the skin from them. Um, and then you puree them with, you know, a little bit of palm oil, uh, some chili, some ginger, garlic, onion. Um, and then you steam them, steam that like puree, that raw puree in banana leaves. Um, and you can serve that with like fresh mackerel um, or like even a hard boiled egg. It's it's really, really delicious. It's handheld. Um, and it just reminds me of like weddings in Nigeria. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's do let's do a flavor. Um, okay, mustard. You've got mustard. You've got to incorporate. What's a dish you'd make? Oh, mustard. I'm gonna go with oh, probably my like um, my Trinidadian grandfather's uh, sardines. So you take sardines. Oh. You know, you take them canned or fresh. You know, cook mm-hmm. them gently, and then um, you chill them, and then you marinate them in this nice little mustard sauce, like mustard pepper sauce, um, some vinegar, uh, some chopped onions, cilantro, uh, not cilantro, avocado and tomato. And then you just let that, you know, do its thing and marinate. And then you serve it with some fresh bread. And my grandfather always used to, always used to make that for me when I went and visited him. Oh, delicious. I love that. Um, all right, we'll just do one of each. Let's, let's do a vegetable okay. next. Uh, okay. Corn is the vegetable we have. Corn. Mm. You know what? I the best way I like to eat corn is in a crawfish boil. So I have a crawfish okay. boil mm-hmm. recipe where you make this like really beautiful crawfish boil um, liquid. It's like the house spice, some hot sauce, some citrus, you know, onions, garlic, um, and you know, you poach your crawfish in that, and you cook your corn in that. So it has all the flavor of like the crawfish and all the spices in it as well. Um, right. so it's my favorite way to eat corn, like or potatoes. Great choice. Um, all right, let's close it out with a secret ingredient. Let's see what we've got let's today. Do it. Uh, okay, coffee beans. We're working with coffee beans. Ooh, coffee beans. That's a tough one. Um, coffee beans. I'm probably going to make like a rub for steak um, and probably add some like mm. jerk paste to that too. 
And, you know, you'd probably use like Blue Mountain Coffee, which is from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably like grill the steak um, on an open fire and throw some coffee beans on that fire. So you get some some smoke as well, some smoked coffee flavor on there. That's great. I think and that's not um, in the recipe, but that's a, that's not in the book. Yeah, that's a freebie for you. That's a freebie. All right, we'll take it. Um, <laughs> I think all all four of those um, sound delicious. So thank you yeah. for for playing along with that game. Well, thank you so much, Kwame. Thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine. It was so great to talk with you. It was amazing to talk with you. You have a great day. Thanks everyone for listening. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. You'll find two featured recipes from Kwame Onwachi's My America on our Substack. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.